I'm Joe. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're in the midst of a series uh, called The Peacemaking Church, and it's all about how to resolve conflicts in our marriages, in our workplaces, uh, in our family relationships, in our church. Um, whatever realm that we are in relationship with people in, we're apt at some point to have conflict. And so we're going through this series, and before we get into it, I want to just make a real quick announcement uh, Jim and his extensive announcement hour left out one really important one, and that is that this um, this coming Saturday from 4 to 6 is our community open house, and this is an opportunity for us to uh, show off our new rooms, to talk about children's ministry and Awana and um, a children's church and these kinds of things. And we've invited the entire community. There's ads in both of the Chillicothe papers coming out this week. Uh, there will be uh, some big inflatable uh, things that the kids will have available to play on. Uh, we'll have some games. Uh, we'll have food. Uh, we'll have games, and we'll have food. And um, uh, there'll be a lot of. It'll be a, it'll be a fun time. It'll be a great opportunity to um, introduce ourselves to the community. A lot of people in our community probably drive by this place and wonder what goes on in that building and who those people are. So this will be an opportunity for you to come and interact with some members of the community and to talk about uh, how much we value children and um, how much we want to be involved in their life and to uh, maybe even introduce some of them to Jesus. Um, the following week is our uh, VBS program, so we're hoping that this is a, a way for us to... Uh, promote that also. So we're excited about that. And you all are invited to come. So if you uh, would like to come, uh, bring your grandkids or your kids, and uh, or your in some cases maybe your great-grandkids, and uh, let them play, and, and we can talk to their parents and, um, and tell them about how important it would be to their life to be part of children's ministry and even adult ministry at Chillicothe Bible Church. Uh, you know, depending on your age... There are certain events that stick in your brain uh, that you remember the details even years later or even decades later of where you were when you heard the news. If you're a certain age, you remember December 7th, 1941. And you remember that on that day, the Japanese fleet attacked Pearl Harbor and 1,263 uh, men lost their lives, and we went to war. And you remember that day and where you were when you heard the news. If you're a little younger, you remember November 22nd, 1963, the day John Kennedy was shot, and where you were when and what you were doing. Of course, all of us remember... Uh, if you're sitting here in this room, you remember September 11th, 2001. I remember being in an office building in Dallas and seeing the video of those planes plunging into the World Trade Center and what we all thought. And the re recognition that once again we were at war. And if you're my age, you remember very distinctly January 28, 1986. Now, you may not remember the date in specific, but you remember the event very clearly. Because you remember that on that day, 
a young school teacher named Krista McCallis, along with six other crew members, were going to blast off into orbit. She was going to present an educational lesson from space. But 25 seconds after liftoff, the space shuttle Challenger exploded out into the Atlantic Ocean, killing every crew member aboard. And there was, of course, an extensive investigation into what happened. And the cause of the disaster was quickly discovered that the O-ring seals between the joints of the booster rockets had become defective, and the resulting mechanical failure produced a massive tragedy before a watching world. But that wasn't the whole truth, because the New York Times and its in its uh, investigation, put it frankly, that the ultimate cause of the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster was pride. There was a group of top-level managers who failed to listen carefully to the warnings, advice, and criticism of those who were underneath them in the chain of command. Those in the lower levels of management at NASA were concerned about the operational reliability of certain parts of the booster engine when under conditions of abnormal stress. And they specifically identified the O-rings as a weak link in the chain and as something that could go wrong. But because the upper management didn't listen, disaster struck. And the point I'm trying to make here is that pride can be very costly. In this case, it cost people their lives. It also cost billions of dollars cost our nation a certain amount of prestige in the eyes of the world. But all of a sudden, America, who had always been able to do whatever it wanted with reference to space, was now shown to be not invincible but vulnerable. And the Challenger disaster really presents a challenge to all of us. How will we respond to criticism? Because criticism is something that we all receive at points uh, but it's some, and it's also something that nobody likes hearing, right? I mean, nobody nobody woke up this morning and and you know said to their spouse, you know, honey, could you criticize me in you know like a really pointed and visceral way? That would be great. I would love that. Nobody likes that. <laughs> nobody does that, right? Nobody stands before God on their wedding day and says, "Do you promise to love, honor, cherish, and criticize one another for the rest of your lives?" No one does that, right? <laughs> Now, you should put, maybe put that in, um, because that is, in fact, how a lot of people's marriage works. But nobody likes hearing criticism, and so the question is not whether or not we're going to be criticized, but how, we're going to be de- how, we're, how we plan to deal with it when it comes, right? Because pride can be costly, not only in terms of technological engineering feats, but also in terms of relationships one to another, it can be costly in marriages, can be costly in businesses, can be costly in churches, can be costly in nations. If you're unwilling to listen to criticism, we're going to define criticism. Criticism is when, if you have your notes, you can kind of follow along here on the back. Uh, criticism is when another person judges you by declaring that you have fallen short of a particular standard. Criticism is when Another person judges you by declaring that you have fallen short of a particular standard. And the standard can be God's standard, 
or man's standard. The judgment can be true or false. Just because you're a recipient of criticism doesn't mean that what they're saying about you is true. But they're judging you to have fallen short of a standard. And whatever the case, it's a judgment about you that you didn't measure up in the way that this person thought that you should to a particular standard, either theirs or maybe even God's. You failed to, to line up. And when criticism comes, most of us would agree that it's difficult to take. And most of us, given a choice, would rather be the giver of criticism than the recipient. I'm in that category. I don't always be the, rather be the giver than the recipient, right? I think we all would. Uh, and most of us, if we, in, if we give in to our natural responses, when someone criticizes us, our natural reaction, normally speaking, is to kind of take up our, our verbal sword and shield in defense of ourselves. I'm not like that. You're a jerk. What? <laughs> right? And we tend, all tend to do that. Or, I didn't say that. You're misquoting me. Or, I don't act like that. How dare you accuse me of being that way? I don't think that I'm that way. I don't think I do that. And we kind of, we defend ourselves. Why do we defend ourselves? Because we feel threatened. We feel like our personal honor, our reputation, uh, our our glory, such as it may be, will be lost if we recognize this as true. And so we make every effort to attempt to rescue ourselves and our own sense of pride and personal honor when, we're, when we get criticized. Uh, our name, we, we say, look, man, I feel like my life is at stake here. And so we make every effort we can and we say, you know, look, I don't want to be misunderstood. I don't want to be misquoted. I don't want to be falsely accused. And what we have done as we do that is we have made an idol out of ourselves and our own pride. Because whatever, as we've been learning in Sunday school, that whatever we make uh, preeminent in our lives, such that we're willing to sacrifice for it, serve it, love it, and adore it, is what we worship. And if it's anything other than God that we sacrifice for, love, adore, and defend, then it's an idol. And when we're in the process of defending ourselves against criticism, either just or unjust, very often we're doing so because we've made an idol out of ourselves and our own pride. So we want to look at the biblical response to criticism. Uh, and if you look at the book of Proverbs, the book of Proverbs is, is a great book. Uh, when I was a teenager, I tried to read one one chapter of Proverbs a day. You have to, in some months, you have to you have to catch up and read uh, read two chapters because there's 31 chapters. But it's a great book and it gives you all kinds of very practical instruction on relating with people and on just dealing with life in a way which is wise or which produces life and is encouraging. Uh, so there's, let me just read you three Proverbs here. Proverbs twelve fifteen. the way of a fool seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Let me read that again. Proverbs twelve fifteen. the way of a fool seems right to him, 
but a wise man listens to advice. In other words, only a foolish person. And biblically, a, a fool is not somebody who is uneducated or not somebody who is um, simply ignorant. It's someone who, has, who knows what he ought to do and doesn't do it. Is a fool. He says, a fool has a way that seems right to him, but a wise man listens to advice. Someone who is seeking to be godly will listen to counsel when it's given. Uh, Proverbs 13.10, pride breeds quarrels, but wisdom is found in those who take advice. Wisdom is found in those who take advice. Here's one more. Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than a hundred lashes a fool. I mean, uh, now we don't do this in our criminal justice system anymore, but back then, one of the punishments that you could incur for a crime would be to be flogged with a whip. And what Solomon is saying here is that there are some people who you can beat several times because because the Jewish punishment, the, the maximum sentence for flogging was 39 lashes. So 100 lashes is like two and a half trips to the magistrate. Uh, and he says, you know, he says, a rebuke impresses a man of discernment more than 100 lashes a fool. In other words, there are some people you can whoop a bunch and they never learn. But if you're a wise man, all it takes is just a verbal correction. And you go, you know what? I'm wrong. I need to change. I need to fix it. Uh, and if you, you know, the, the thing is, what he's saying is here, look, is, is this. The ability to take advice or correction or a rebuke or however you want to look at it is something that is to be considered a mark of being a wise person. A wise person is one who aligns his life, biblically speaking. A wise person is someone who aligns his life with the Word of God. And a fool is someone who says, I know what God's Word says, however, I'm going to go this way. That is stupid. That is foolish. Um, because God, of course, ordains the world and has has created it to operate in a certain fashion. So a person who says, I'm not going to listen to what God's word says, I'm going to do it my way, is a fool. Because their life is going to be full of pain. Um, but to listen to criticism, to listen to rebuke, is a mark of a wise person. It's what we would call spiritual maturity. To be wise is to be a spiritually mature person. And not all criticism is justified. Sometimes you can, it can be given in an unkind way, even if it's true. Sometimes it's just completely unjustified. But listening to it, if we have the humility to listen to criticism, even when it's not justified, it can help us to grow. Uh, and that's my second major point there on your outline, is that Criticism can be a blessing and help us to grow in maturity if we have the, the humility to listen 
to whatever might be true in it. Because let's face it, even when somebody gives you criticism that's unjustified, a lot of times there's a nugget of something in there that's true. I mean, that's why humor is so, is so effective. When it's good, it's because there's something that's true that's there. And we resonate with it. And we laugh because we recognize ourselves or we see our foolishness in a joke that somebody makes, right? The same thing can be true with criticism, that even when it's unjustified in the way it was done or even in the words that were said, a lot of times there's a nugget of truth that's there. And if we have the humility to accept whatever is true in it, then we can, then it can actually, even something that was meant for our discouragement and to tear us down, can be a blessing to us and help us grow in maturity. But, but that's hard to do. Hard to do. That's a graduate level course in spiritual maturity to respond to criticism that way. But if we, if we recognize, okay, well, I don't have the ability to do that yet. How do I grow in my ability to respond to criticism well? And I think the, the best way to do that is to look at the cross of Christ. At the center of all our existence, at the center of our entire Christian life is the cross. And if we understand the gospel rightly, and we understand what Jesus is doing for us rightly in going to the cross, we understand what's going on there, and we can understand and grow in our ability to respond to criticism rightly. And the first step, I think, there's, there's two steps to this. The first one is to, you know, as you're looking at the cross and as you're looking at what Jesus has done for us there, the, the cross of Christ gives us the ability to, to, to look at that and say, look at criticism and say, in Christ's cross, I affirm God's judgment of me. Uh, criticism, as we've seen, as we defined it earlier, Criticism is another word for judgment. When we see Christ go to the cross, what does it say about us? It says that God judged us in Christ on the cross. And Paul says, in fact, in one of his letters in Galatians, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. And what he means in some sense is that when Christ hung on the cross... I was crucified with him because my judgment, the judgment that I deserved was poured out on Jesus on the cross. As he hung there, he bore my penalty and my, for my sin. Right? That's the glory of the gospel is that I deserve to die and go to hell and be separated from God. Instead of that, Jesus Christ takes my place. He takes my penalty and takes my sin. By going to the cross. And so to be a Christian is to affirm God's judgment on me, right? What's the, whenever we talk about evangelism, one of the things we tell people is this. We say you've got to get people lost before you can get them saved. And what we mean by that is this. That someone has to come to the point where they recognize and affirm and believe in what God says about them. That you are a sinner that you are separated from God, that you deserve to go to hell. 
And they have to believe that and accept that and go, yep, I am. I'm a sinner. My sins justify and merit God's wrath on me for eternity, and I deserve to go to hell, just like the Bible says. Right? Is that the worst possible criticism that you could give somebody? <laughs> I mean, really, <laughs> think about it. You're such a horrible, nasty, terrible person that you deserve to go to hell for all eternity. That's a fairly high level of criticism. On the scale of criticism, that's up there, right? That is, that's way up there. We do deserve God's wrath. We do deserve to be separated from God. And, and you know, I think we need to step back and realize what a radical confession we're really making when we say, I'm a sinner who's separated from God and who deserves to be, and who only through Christ has had his sins covered. Uh, you know, we think that a lot of times it's pretty easy to become a Christian. Oh, you just believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. A lot of people don't want to admit that they have sins. A lot of people don't want to admit that if they do sin, that their sins are bad enough to merit God's wrath for eternity. Well, yeah, I, you know, I, in fact, as you talk with people about the gospel, what they'll say is this. They'll say, well, you know, uh, well, why do you think, if you stood before God, why do you think he should let you into heaven? And this is what they'll say. Well, I'm a pretty good person. I mean, I'm, I'm not a bad guy. And they basically think God grades on the curve and has kind of a sliding scale and like, you know, I don't know how bad you have to be to go to hell, but it's worse than me. Right? And we set ourselves up as a standard. And God says, no, there's an absolute standard. One sin means eternal wrath forever in hell. And becoming a Christian involves a huge step of humility of being able to stand before God and say, you know what, there's nothing I can bring to this relationship that merits me any standing before you whatsoever, and I just come in need of a Savior. And so as we face criticism, we look at, we look at the cross of Christ, and we say, look, God has already said the worst possible thing that, it is, that there is to say about me. And so as we think about the fact that we have already had to admit our complete and total depravity and brokenness before God, when somebody criticizes us, we can say back to them, you don't know the half of it. You don't know how bad it is. I am so bad that God had to send his only son to die on the cross for me. You're right. I'm a lousy person. And it's wonderfully freeing, by the way, to know that you're a loser. <laughs> okay? <laughs> to be able to stand before God and admit, there's nothing I got to give you. Everything that I need needs to come from you as a gift. And as somebody criticizes us, we can recognize, you know what? You're right. I'm fallen. I'm a sinner. I'm someone who deserves God's eternal wrath. God has already said the worst thing there is to say about me, and I agree with it. That's part of what becoming a Christian, in fact, requires, is doing that, right? So, 
um, I can have then have if I can have the level of humility that enables me to to admit that kind of thing before God, then I ought to be able to have the kind of humility that would require to listen to another human who's fallen and sinful and deserving of going to hell criticize me for my sin. Even if they misunderstand, even if they misquoted, even if they didn't represent you well, even if they're being unkind. Because the flip side of this is that God said also that there is more to our standing before him than just judgment, right? And being crucified with Christ also means that you can say this, in the cross, I affirm God's justification of me. Not just his judgment, but also his justification of me. In other words, justification is one of those big theological words that we use, and and maybe you're sitting out there and go, yeah, I've heard that word before. I don't know what it means. Here's what it means, basically. It means that when you stand before God and you admit, I'm a sinner who deserves to be separated from you, but I am placing my trust in Jesus Christ, shed blood on the cross for my sin and in his resurrection, then at that moment you receive an alien status, something that's not yours uh, innately to you. You receive from God the righteousness of God that comes to you as the blood of Christ covers over your sin. Blood of Christ covers your sin, and you then stand before God not just neutral, but actually righteous. That you make a trade, in a sense, with God. He says, if you admit your need and acknowledge what I've done in Jesus, then I will give you not just forgiveness of your sin, but actual righteousness from Christ. You get to trade in your heap of a mess of a life, uh, of all of your sin, and you get back the righteousness of Christ. It's so much better than trading in a car. You know, it's this, but it's the same kind of trade. I trade in my old heap, and God gives me something brand new that I didn't have to earn, that I don't have to pay for. And God has justified me so that when I stand before God now as a believer, even though I still sin, I stand before God with the righteousness of Christ clothing me. In other words, God has loved me so much in spite of my behavior, not because of my behavior, not because of my speech, not because of my thinking, but in spite of the fact that all those things are sinful, God loved me and saved me. And because God did it all, I don't have anything to be proud about. Remember, that's what Ephesians 9, 2.9 says, that so that no one can boast. Because we didn't earn this. We didn't pull ourselves up by our own, our own bootstraps. We didn't climb any mountain. We didn't do any acts of righteousness that were sufficient that God recognized. And, oh, I'm really impressed. No. God is impressed by the sacrifice of Christ and by those who appropriate the sacrifice of Christ to themselves and to their life. And when we say, I know in me, in my flesh dwells no good thing, but... God has received me and welcomed me and made me a part of his family. And that is the basis of who I am. 
and given me an identity in Christ that now, no matter what anybody else says about me, God has said the worst thing, but he has also said the very best thing. You know, I have a tendency sometimes when somebody harshly criticizes me to just go into depression. To just be like, oh, horrible, you know, or to get really angry. Oh, they are such a jerk. I can't believe they would say that to me like that, right? And neither one is a really biblical, godly, God-honoring, mature, wise response, right? And I'll bet that I'm not the only one who has, at, at one point in the past, responded that way, right? But we can say, look, I can have the humility to listen to someone's criticism because God has already said so much worse about me, right? God has already said the worst thing is possible to say. I'm so depraved I deserve to go to hell. That's the worst thing you can say. But God has also said the very best thing that is possible to say. But by the grace of God, I stand before God righteous and holy and a member of his family. And nothing that anybody says to me that's critical is going to ever change that status that I have before God. So I can also have the humility to listen to what they have to say based on the fact that it doesn't affect what's ultimately important, which is my identity in Christ, in any way. Because in Christ's cross, I can affirm both God's judgment of me and his justification. And as Paul said in another book in Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God says I am righteous, then who is there to condemn me? If, if my sin is covered by the blood of Christ, then I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to make myself look better in my own eyes or try to make myself look better in the eyes of others because God has already justified me. God has already judged, but he's also already justified me and given me a right standing. Uh, and you can begin to live out the implications of these great truths in your life. Let me give you... Just five ways here to, to live out the implications of God's judgment and justification of you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Number one, you can face any criticism with, with confidence. It doesn't matter what somebody says. No criticism can ever be greater than what God says about me at the cross. I deserve to die for my sins, and short of that, anything else is just pure grace. And so I can face any, any criticism with confidence. Number two, I can find comfort by seeing God's hand in criticism, even if it's wrong or mean-spirited. There's this great incident in David's life. David's son Absalom has gathered followers after himself, and he has led a rebellion, and he's trying to overthrow David and become king himself in place of his dad. And there's a civil war that's getting started. And as David leaves, leaves the palace and leaves Jerusalem, there's a man named Shammai who's outside the city throwing rocks and cursing David. And he's cursing him in no uncertain terms. I mean, David knows he's being cursed, okay? And one of David's followers, his military commander, says, I'm going to go kill that guy. I'm going to go run him through. How dare he say that about you? And David says, put your sword away. 
Maybe God has told him to curse. And if God has told him to curse, I'm going to let him curse. Now, David was the king. And on top of that, he was the king of Israel, which meant it was a very serious thing to curse the king because the king was the Lord's anointed. He was the one the Lord had specifically chosen to be the king. And so it was not just a minor violation of the law. This was to, this was to attack, in some sense, to attack God. Because he was the one God had put there. And yet David says, put your sword away. I want to see God's hand in this. And we can look for God's hand as someone criticizes us. To We can see God saying, you know, this really is a problem in your life. This is something you need to deal with. Or even if it's unfair, say, well, I needed to learn humility somehow, and maybe this is a way I can learn it. Number three, we can respond to criticism with a spirit of thanksgiving. Now, you may, that may be totally alien <laughs> to what you're thinking. You know, somebody really rips you to say, well, thank God they did that. <laughs> but we really can. If we really understand what, what God has said about us in the cross, we can say this, Lord, even if this is wrong, and maybe it is. Even if this is wrong, it reminds me that I do have faults that are real. And yet you have forgiven me, and I thank you for that. Number four, we can respond with humility and a willingness to learn from criticism. We can say, I, I want to learn what God has for me to learn here. I want to change in the way that God would want me to change. Because God has judged all my sin and he's also covered all my sin. And so we can listen to those who are criticizing us and say, I want to, I want to understand how your criticisms are valid here. Help me to understand. Help me to change. Proverbs also says this, a soft answer turns away anger. And as we respond in grace, even when someone has been ungracious to us and in the spirit of, I want to learn from you, help me to understand, it can be marvelously diffusing to what they have to say and the vitriol with which it is offered sometimes. Uh, finally, we can respond in a spirit of submission. Not necessarily to that person, but to God. And recognize that sometimes... Criticism is like a um, is like Roundup, and God uses it to pull the weeds and to kill the weeds of pride in our hearts, because pride is the one sin that all of us are prone to, man, woman, or child. We all tend to think that we are the greatest and the best, and criticism is one way that God uses to knock down the walls of pride that we build around ourselves. Now, I uh, just want to give you some, how do I put this into practice? How do, I, how do I apply this to my own life? Because maybe you're sitting out there and you have thought about how you respond to criticism versus how the Bible would call you to respond to criticism, and you go, okay, uh, I understand that I don't measure up to the standard here of God's Word, but how do I do this? And hopefully... 
uh, that, that, that's happening. Hopefully that as you sit and listen to God's word and what it has to say, that God's spirit is working in your heart. And if that is happening, that's a good thing. It's a very good thing. It's not bad to feel convicted by the spirit of God and his word. Um, but we want to move past simply feeling convicted and into change. So how do we do that? Here's some things. Uh, critique yourself. Look in the mirror maybe even literally, and critique yourself and say, now how do I respond to criticism when it's offered? Do I overreact? Do I pout? Do I play down my errors and try to shift the blame onto them or onto somebody else? Do I go on the defensive talking about all the good things I also do? Even though I also do this negative thing. Uh, do I point out the other person's sin and error? Oh, yeah? Well, you think I'm a horrible sinner by doing that? Well, let me tell you the 16 things that you do wrong. Here's the list. Okay, How do I respond to criticism? Critique yourself and look at it. Uh, are you Ultimately, the question is, are you a teachable person? Are you someone who has a spirit that is soft enough that God can use this other person, even sometimes in their sin, to speak to you and to change you in a way that pleases God? pleases God. Uh, Number two, ask the Lord to help you to be wise instead of foolish. Remember what Proverbs says? That a foolish person just goes his own way and never listens to anybody. (laughs) But that a wise person listens to advice. Uh, One time I was getting, uh, I was early married and my, um, I was getting some unwanted, unsolicited advice from members of my family uh, about how to be a good husband and all this kind of stuff. And I went to my dad and said, Dad, what do I do here? I mean, I'm getting all kinds of helpful comments, some some from people who are not married. (laughs) You know, um, what do I do here? And he said, well, son, don't be an idiot. He says, if it's good advice, take it, even if you don't appreciate the source. And if it's bad advice, then you can reject it safely. But, you know, you need to really weigh every bit of it that you're given. And ask the Lord to help you be wise instead of foolish. Focus on the fact that you have been crucified with Christ. Uh, God has both judged you guilty enough to be deserving of hell but he's also justified you and made you righteous enough to be a member of his family and to be in his presence forever. You are a child of the king. You've also someone someone who has had to admit before God to be in that family that your sins are deserving of hell. And that helps us keep our balance and keep our perspective as somebody comes to us. Uh, number four, ask yourself, do people feel comfortable at offering me correction or do I, ha- do I have a habit of responding with justification and defensiveness? In other words, are you one of those people? Now, we've probably all had one of those people that we have worked with or been around and they, ever, they have real obvious flaws that are apparent to everybody and yet nobody can say anything to that person because, well, they just don't take it well. <laughs> We've tried to talk to them, and they just don't take it well. 
And if you're one, if you're one of those people, or if you're that person, that needs to change. You need to be able to listen to advice and in a spirit of humility receive correction when somebody offers it to you. Because there, a lot of times when people offer you correction, they're doing it for two reasons. Number one, because they're hurt. And number two, because they really do want what is best for you. They want that area of your life not to continue. And it really is best for you if it doesn't. And so receive it in, this, in the right spirit. Uh, finally, learn to speak nourishing words to others. That as you, as you get the right perspective on yourself and has, how you respond to criticism, then you can learn to give criticism or correction to somebody else in the right spirit also. Because sometimes, you know, we all have different kind of sin patterns and, and tendencies and whatever that we're prone to. And this is how we think. We go, well, I would never do that to them. I, or I would never say that the way that they said that. Therefore, they're a horrible person. They're much worse than me. And they need me to come in and be the voice of God in their life. You know? <laughs> um, and we measure ourselves versus them. And we find ourselves always coming out on top. Right? Instead of recognizing our own sinfulness. And even if we might not be prone to that one, there's 55 others that we are prone to. And God has forgiven me just as he has forgiven them. And then we can come to that person with a spirit of humility and say to them, you know, I just want you to know I'm not a perfect person and I'm not perfectly holy in everything I do and say and think. But I see an area of your life here that I would like to help you with. And if you would, if you would do me the honor of listening to me, I, I think I can assist you in helping you grow in this area. That's a whole lot better than, you know what, I'm a righteous person and you're a jerk. <laughs> that doesn't come off the same way. And as we understand where we're able, where we stand before God, both on the negative side of our sin and on the positive side of all that Christ has done for us to make us righteous, in spite of everything we've done, we can then come to somebody else in a recognition of where we stand before God, too, and stand with them in helping them to bring about change. So let's pray, and then we'll sing, and we'll uh, be dismissed. God, our Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to not be so proud 